Welcome to our second episode of LifeWords Q&A. I'm Andrew Morris, and joining me for LifeWords is uh, LifeWords author David Ray. Uh, it's a 20-minute to 30-minute uh, discussion on faith and life and how both those uh, subjects and both those aspects intersect in our daily life. If you've got questions, you can email us anytime you like, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. David, welcome to uh, our second episode. Thanks, Andrew. I enjoyed the first episode, and let's do it again. Yep. So if uh, you can always download uh, the first episode and any episodes of LifeWords at, at hope1032.com.au or through the iTunes uh, store. David, the first question is a doozy. It comes from Ben, and he's asking the question, the Bible says the sins of the fathers are passed on to future generations. What does this mean? Ben, that's a really good question. And uh, many, many, many great ones, far greater than you or me, uh, have wrestled with it and don't always agree with what it means. You see, some think it means that, for example, what my great-grandfather did somehow or other mechanically, automatically communicates itself to me in my bloodstream. That's a fairly literal approach. And incidentally, they same people would say, well, it's only to a certain number of generations and then the whole deal's off sort of thing. Um, but I, I'm not sure whether I can take it that literally, Ben. I, I, I would think it probably means a more general thing, which is demonstrated actually in, uh, in society anyway. You see, what's been done in my family will affect me. For example, hypothetically, uh, for me, an abusive grandfather might have affected my mother in a way that has shaped how she raised me. So in a sense, what my grandfather might have done, uh, in fact, and all the sins that he committed, may in fact shape or distort my life now. Um, for example, it's known that a history of family alcoholism in the past can make a family member in the present more prone to be similarly affected. I mean, my own father, uh, he, he was a very shy, quiet, retiring sort of guy who didn't have a lot of self-confidence or assertiveness. And, and I found that certainly in my earlier childhood, um, I was very much afflicted by that. So in a sense, we say, oh, he takes after his father or he takes after mm. his mother. Well, in, in, in a sense, that's part of the essence of what the Bible's saying here. It's, uh, it's very interesting, David, because uh, science is, uh, particularly this year, um, coming out uh, with research, it's called epi epigenetics, and it's actually looking at inherited genes or inherited traits that's been passed genetically. So outside environments, maybe like an, an alcoholic father, has actually genetically uh, affected the birth of the children. So it's bore, bear, bearing out possibly what we're seeing maybe illustrated in the Bible, but through uh, through today's science is sort of maybe confirming that. Well, it's, it's not surprising. Yeah. Not surprising because we know that all true science uh, will, in fact, uh, be consistent with what the Scripture truly teaches. And it doesn't surprise me at all to hear that, Andrew, that, 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 that uh, um, our present genetic framework is shaped by... Um, earlier generations. Um, this tends to happen through um, through any family. But I guess there's one thing we need to caution about. Um, that is, we might be thinking, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm done for. My grandfather was a horrible person or my mother neglected me. Therefore, I'm doomed to fail. Yeah, there's a sense of fear, isn't there? Fear that I'm condemned to, oh, you know, maybe in seeing it's a curse-like kind of thing. Yeah, and, and some Christians do, I, I think, sadly jump to that conclusion. Now, now, when you mention the word curse, I, I, I 
can, do believe that there can be such a thing as a curse put on someone, particularly if they've dabbled in the occult. The evil one loves to destroy and dehumanise people. We know that. But I would certainly say to people on that score, don't jump to that conclusion because uh, uh, just because you've had a run of misfortune or uh, you're chronically ill that somehow or other someone must have put a curse on you. Mm. I, I would suspect in that case uh, to just go and seek out some very mature, responsible Christians that you know and to say, look, please can you pray for me through this because I tell you what, if, if something like that's been put on you, uh, the Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of alerting you to it and if he doesn't alert you to it, well, just put it to one side. Uh, don't go scouring your soul for a curse or something like that. Uh, so we, we, we are not uh, helpless victims of whatever someone has done in the past. Well, yeah, I mean, we know that God can forgives us of our of our past. When and when we come, he 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 does hear our prayers and answers our prayers. Now, this is going to be a question later in today's program about, I guess, how God answers our prayers. But what can we expect God to do in terms of if we've got concerns about this or, or fears about oh the sins of the fathers being passed down? What can I expect God to do for me? Well. It's it's funny. What I'm going to say might not make a lot of sense to you. It might be surprising, but God will do a fair bit, but He will not necessarily wipe out all the distortions and the imperfections and the problems that have come down to you from other generations. I am still the product of my upbringing even though I've had a long journey with the grace of God. You see, God always uses imperfect instruments and imperfect vessels. We know that through the scriptures. God doesn't wave the magic wand and say, well, your family background didn't matter, your upbringing doesn't matter, uh, the, the genes you inherited don't matter, I'm just going to wipe it all out so that everything becomes new. No, what God does, he does make all things new, but what he does do, I think, is to take the old self, as it were, and gives that old self a new perspective on life so that have earlier generations, what earlier generations in my family, do they affect me? Yes, they do. But what God does is to say they are not going to cripple you. They are not going to dehumanize you. Rather, what God will do is to somehow or other take up the, the, the uh, distortions, the baggage, the damage that's been done and somehow or other weave them in such a way that they become actually instruments for good. So, for example, a person who has been terribly abused as a child, terrible, terrible, terrible. God doesn't wipe away all the memories or all the pain. He doesn't do that. But what he may well do is to weave that terrible experience into your life in such a way that you actually can use that as an opportunity for helping other people who've been through that situation. So, yes, God, God won't take it all away, uh, what's happened in earlier generations, but he sure can give you a fresh start so that you, you in your imperfect self, can start, and start afresh and start helping other people to journey afresh as well. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A with David Ray and myself, Andrew Morris. If you've got a question for David, you can email us, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. David, our second question for today is, uh, can Australia be called a Christian country? Is there such a thing as a Christian country? Oh, Andrew, um, the answer to that question is no. 
No. No. So the, the, the majority <laughs> no. of people in Australia call themselves Christian, but we're not a Christian we country. We are not a Christian country, and uh, dear me, here I'm going to be arrogant, aren't I? But uh, the people who might on a census form tick a box saying they are Christians, uh, we have to just query just what content that is given. Uh, for example, uh, ticking the box in a census form or so on is really could be a way for some people to say, well, I'm not a Muslim. I don't think I'm an atheist. Uh, I don't think I'm a Buddhist. Uh, oh, therefore, I'll put uh, Christian down. So it may not mean anything. I'm pleased I'm not passing a judgment on individuals at all. But just because people might call themselves Christians does not necessarily mean they are. And certainly that applies to people who go to church as well, uh, as well as those who don't. Um, look, I don't think any country can truly be called a Christian country. A Christian is someone who has embraced the forgiveness of Jesus and seeks to follow him. A person can do that, but a nation or an institution can't do that. So, so, so it, it doesn't quite make sense to say Australia is a Christian country. Even if the majority of people in it were Christians, which I, I consider questionable, uh, even if they were, it, it still, I don't think, makes a lot of sense to say it's a Christian country. I mean, I guess you hear that argument, particularly at the moment with, uh, uh, say, in Australia with immigration and, and there, there may be different denominations or different ethnicities that are coming into the country. Let's just say uh, an increasing number of Muslims coming into the country. And so and we may feel threatened. Some people in the media feel threatened and say, well, we're a Christian country. They should change to what we believe and all that kind of stuff. So it's more cultural, really, maybe our Westminster way of doing than rather our, our faith and, and stuff. Would that be correct? Yeah, I think you put your finger on it. Um, in public debate, I think that's often what people are talking about when they say we're a Christian country. Um, we do not want Islamic law, for example. Um, we do not want um, to surrender all the values of what's called our Judeo-Christian tradition. You see, the most I think we can say for any nation, and that includes Australia, is that we have laws and customs that have been shaped by the Christian tradition. And that's very important, and there's no way in the world when I say I don't think we're a Christian country, there's no way in the world I'm trying to diminish the importance of that. Um, I'm very thankful that Australia has been shaped not by uh, mere secularism or atheism or whatever, but it's been shaped to a fair degree in in the construction and the enforcement of its laws by the Christian tradition. And uh, I think that applies to Australia, but it doesn't make us Christian in the biblical sense. There are many, many people in our in, in our world, in Australian society, uh, who who conform to certain Christian values, but that doesn't necessarily make them a personal disciple of Jesus Christ, for example. So yes, Australia can be thankful for its Judeo-Christian traditions, and I as a Christian would love to see them maintained and strengthened because I think they're the best way for us to live. But um, uh, the fact is, Andrew, as, as people will know, we're, we're a pluralist society now. Um, we, the Christians have got no monopoly. I guess that does come down to the question of, I'm a Christian and I would like to see, and I guess there are some political parties and some and some people who share our faith who would like to see our schools, our, our systems of government reflect more of their faith or our faith and have, uh, I guess, laws passed that are uh, perhaps uh, coming from a Christian point. I guess the obvious ones are, are abortion and, and, and things like that. Would Jesus want that? 
Uh, well, 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 it's always hard to say what Jesus wanted. I think there's too many people around the place who reckon that they speak for Jesus. But yeah. I, I think in general what you say is true, that that um, when God gave his laws, say summarised in the Ten Commandments and much of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, oh, wouldn't our nation be a much better place if we lived by it and if we practised it? But it's not it 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 would be very dangerous to try to legislate morality uh we can't do that our laws our traditions our customs can best be seen as that which can safeguard and nurture a good christian morality but they can't create it they can't create that morality and we can't enforce our Christian views on people. You see, I, and I, I, I don't think Jesus ever tried to enforce his views on people. He spoke boldly and absolutely and said, I think this is the way to live, fellas, and you, you better live this way. But he didn't try to enforce it. Um, remember, Jesus didn't come to set up a particular, uh, what we call a theocracy, um, a particular political entity which is ruled by the religious leaders. Yeah. Uh, he didn't. He, he, he didn't come to do that. He resisted that particular temptation. And yet, yes, he's he preached and practiced uh, certain things in such a way to say this is the best way to live. And, and the task that Christians have got in our society is to both lobby, persuade, uh, influence, get involved in politics and other social groupings that can uh, shape opinion, uh, yet falling short of saying, hey, we're Christians, we've got a right that our views be followed because we're a Christian country. And as I say, we're not a Christian country, and therefore we've got no right to enforce our views, but we've got every right to be there in the marketplace lobbying, persuading. And I would be concerned if our society so marginalises Christians that they say, well, every other view's got a right to be heard, but yours haven't. I'd want to say, no, we're not a Christian country, but boy, as one Christian in it, I would love to see this country prosper and be fruitful and be the country it ought to be. And I reckon, for one, that the way of Jesus is the way to do it. Well, David, I can't let you finish uh, this topic without asking you the question that I guess, uh, you know, change is moving faster, whether it's technology, uh, with uh, Australia changing, whether it's the de demographics, the role of fear and the fear of change is obviously uh, an important thing to look at. And as Christians, we face those fears as well with the changing landscape around us. How as a Christian... Would you recommend that we deal with that, that, with the changing landscape around us? Well, the, it's interesting that the most common command in the Bible uh, is fear not. And I think it's most common because we are prone to fear all sorts of things. The fear that you've described there is, is partly xenophobia, which is fear of the stranger, um, fear of the unknown person coming into our country and, and, and changing its culture and traditions. And I think that's a legitimate uh, a bit of trepidation. But, but I don't think a Christian should fear it um, because uh, we trust in Jesus Christ who has conquered death. Uh, we trust in God who was the creator and sustainer of the universe. And uh, while we may find some changes to our culture uh, unpleasant and unnerving, uh, we should not succumb to fear about it. I know of people who live in certain areas of Sydney for many years and they find the ethnic makeup of the area in which they've lived all their lives utterly and completely changed. And that's unsettling. And I don't think that's a, uh, that's a, a sin or anything like that. 
But if they then succumb to fear that we're being taken over by um, other people, I think that's, in a sense, leaving God out of the picture. I think God's well in control of all these people movements. And I think the fear of some Christians is, oh, we're going to be pushed away to the margins. We've been at the centre of things for decades. We've been pushed to the margins. Uh, Should we be afraid of that? Well, all I'd say to that is that the greatest period of growth in the church was in that early church when they were marginalized when they were living in a hostile environment when there was much to fear and yet we trust that those early christians didn't succumb to that fear uh, that i think we're getting back to that sort of environment where we've got no more privileged position uh, we are being pushed to the margins we are being attacked and to a degree persecuted we know all that and does that make us afraid well sometimes sadly it does but really see it as an opportunity we rely now on the Holy Spirit, not on political machinations, not on um, ethnic um, homogenous culture. No, we are basically saying, God, we have to rely on you. This is a threatening, it's a changing world, but Lord, it drives us into the arms of the unchanging God. You're listening to LifeWords Q&A. Great to have your company. Hope you're enjoying the discussions that we're having. If you've got a question for David, you can email us, lifewords at hopemedia.com. Okay, so our final question for today, David, is from Kay, and she's asking uh, a question which is uh, a difficult one. Why don't I get what I ask for in prayer when the Bible seems to teach that I will? Yeah, Kay, there's there's two issues in that. Uh, One is that uh, why don't we get what we ask for, number one. But number two, why does the Bible seem to teach that we do get what we ask for? The great writer C.S. Lewis, uh, who seemed to have the answer to most things, once wrote a paper called Petitionary Prayer, The Problem Without an Answer. And Lewis's statement there was, I really haven't got an answer to the fact that the Bible seems to suggest we're going to get what we ask for, but we don't. And I guess I could easily cop out at this point by saying, well, if the great C.S. Lewis didn't have an answer to it, nor do we. But I, I, I... I think we can say a few things about it and none of which is going to completely relax us and and, and cause a, a disappearance of the problem. But you see, with a lot of these promises, there are stated or unstated conditions that what we ask for fits in with God purpose, God's purposes. So, for example, when Jesus says, uh, you know, ask and you will receive, mm. um, well, if we ask, Lord, please help me to plot revenge on this person who has hurt me so that I can get back at them, well, we didn't, wouldn't necessarily assume that uh, we're going to get it. Uh, So sometimes we do ask for the wrong things and uh, sometimes we're very glad that God rejects them because we don't always know what to ask for. Sometimes we ask for good things but they don't happen because not even God gets his own way in this world. And um, that might seem a bit, bit um, might take you aback, but in fact, uh, it's true. God wants everyone to be saved, but not everyone is. God wants peace, justice, harmony to reign, but it doesn't. So when we ask for good things and they don't happen, we might complain and God says, well, yes, I, I, I want a whole lot of good things to happen in this world, but not even I get my own way in this world immediately. And of course, then sometimes we do ask for good things and we have to wait. Because God's set of timing is different to ours, but at other times we get a different sort of good thing. Um, We ask for one good thing, we get another good thing. And of course, sometimes, and let's not forget this, sometimes we ask for uh, a particular thing and we get a particular thing. So let's not uh, uh, forget that in all the problems we have with unanswered prayers, seemingly there are many prayers that are answered. 
Oh, David. So where do we go from here in the sense of when, when, I, when I'm praying for, for something? How do, I, how do I reconcile that? I mean, what, is this? Give me an easy step-by-step guide. What, what's some tips I can, uh, some expectations or a way to approach prayer? Anytime you see a book on the shelves of um, 10 easy steps to praying, um, put it in the science fiction section. Uh, yeah, it's, okay. just, it's, not, it's, it's not real. No, look, look um, it is troubling. But I tell you what, I think the most basic answer we can give to this, Andrew, is that we have to rethink the very nature of prayer. And this is something that's happened to me over more recent years. I've asked for certain things and seemingly got the opposite. Uh, I've asked for certain things and not got them. Now, mind you, in brackets, I have to say that there are many things I have got. So I'm not uh, sort of saying that uh, my life has been miserable or no prayers have been answered. But I've had enough experience of um, this puzzlement of prayer to to cause me to re-examine prayer. You see, prayer is is not about putting a coin in the faith slot and getting the jackpot. I think too many Christians perhaps narrow their idea of prayer down to I ask God for something and he gives me something. Um, and, and of course, as we said, that there, there are issues with that and there is nothing wrong with asking God for things. I, I want to stress that. But primarily, that is not how I see prayer. Would you say prayer is communion, hanging out with communion, God? Communion, hanging out with God, sustaining and deepening a relationship with God. Any any relationship, any human relationship depends on forging a connection and communicating within that connection. And that's what I do. When I come to God every morning, I, for example, I pray for my daughters. I pray for my wife. I pray for certain people I know who are in need. And I've virtually given up on saying to God, right, God, this is how it's going to turn out. I've just surrendered it to God. I've relinquished control to God. I've said, God, this is on my heart. These people are on my heart. And so I know they're on your heart. And I'm simply sharing what's on my heart with you. I am asking for things. I'm certainly am asking for things. But I'm asking for it in the context of, well, this is, this is, this is what I would love to happen. But no more, or I don't think I've ever done this, but I'm certainly trying to avoid saying to God, God, uh, I'm asking you for this, and I've got loads and loads of faith, and I'm a Christian pastor after all, and you must give it to me. What I'm really saying is, God, I surrender these people to you. I'm surrendering the situation to you. This is what I would love to happen. Will it happen? Lord, I'll leave that with you. A prayer journal, a prayer diary, would it make sense if you possibly want to put, track down thoughts or, you know, I guess if the Holy Spirit is within us, David, and is, he's our advocate and our counsellor, and he speaks to us and he speaks to God on our behalf when we don't have the words to mm-hmm. necessarily to speak out or pray, would it be worth having a prayer journal as if, if that's something that you could do to write down your prayers and, and to write down yep. responses and feelings or that the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you and just to write them down and just to reflect on them down the track and see if that they yep. are answers? Well, look, some people keep prayer journals 
And isn't it funny? I'm a writer. I love writing. Writing's been one of my passions. I've never been able to sustain a prayer journal. And for a while I was feeling terribly guilty about that. But now I realise that, yes, some people love to journal their prayers. And and I'd encourage you to do it. If you want to have a go at it, you go at it. But hey, if you can't sustain it, don't don't sort of Mm. get these great globules of guilt over you and say I'm a terrible prayer because of it. But yes, um, keeping keeping journal notes is good. One one aspect of a journal, keeping a journal, is is very relevant to this. Is some people have suggested you keep a journal, as I've done from time to time, an I ask and he answers journal. On one side of a page, I ask. On the other side of the page. He answers. Now, remember what I've said. We will not always get what we ask for in prayer, and that's not the essence of prayer. But what I'm encouraging people to do is to be more discerning as to just how God answers the prayer. I've had a long list of things that I put to God some years ago saying, God, I would love this. I would love this. I would love that. I would love that. And I go back to that list every now and then and say, how's God answered it? Because, you see, there's some things which God has been stubbornly silent on, and I shake my fist at him and say, why, why, why? But I look down my list and think, wait a minute, he's answered a whole lot of things, sometimes in rather different ways. So I guess just to wrap things up, David, you're pretty much saying that that prayer is more a communion, a heart-to-heart conversation than a a list of, uh, a wish list, if you like. Yes, that's right. It it requests are a part of prayer. But look, I, I guess, Andrew... One of the best patterns of prayer I can think of is a very short prayer that Jesus prayed in Gethsemane. Um, He was facing the cross. He says, Father, um, may this cup, which is suffering, the suffering on the cross, may this pass from me. In other words, what was Jesus asking God? I don't want to be crucified. This is my wish. This is my heart's desire. And as the, the son was praying to the father, his heart's desire. And yet, what does Jesus go on to say? Yet not my will, but yours be done. Um, so what I want to say is the essence of prayer, petitionary prayer in this particular case, is is, is to boldly ask. Oh, yes, don't hold back in asking. Jesus didn't hold back in asking in Gethsemane. If you want a new, if you believe it's right to have a new job um, or your son to marry this particular person or so on, you ask. It's on your heart. And God knows it's on your heart anyway, so you may as well articulate it. But having done that, accept the fact that yes, in the end, we want to surrender to your will. So what I'm saying is prayer is not all about may this cup pass from me, in Jesus' terms, but prayer is not all about your will be done because prayer is not just shrugging your shoulders and say, oh, well, God, you're going to have your way anyway, so why bother praying? No, you share your heart with the Father, may this cup pass from me, but at the same time, you humbly submit to the Father, your will not mine be done. And I think that balance in the Gethsemane prayer is a reminder to me of how I approach petitionary prayer. Boldly asking, no question about that, but humbly submitting. David, thank you. There's a, we, we will definitely be covering more on prayer and God's answers to prayer in coming episodes. So don't worry if this, we possibly cannot answer all the things in one 10-minute section. Thanks for listening to LifeWords. We really hope you've enjoyed uh, this second episode. We'll be back next week with more questions from yourself. Remember, you can email us during the week, lifewords at hopemedia.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon.